Hi, everybody. I'm Ryan. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I was asked about uh, a year and a half ago uh, to be here on this date, and uh, I think, you know, my work in the last few years, I've kind of, it's kind of slowed down. Uh, I'm 67 now. A lot of people here don't believe it, and I don't, of course, I don't believe it myself, but I, I've kind of slowed down, and I kind of questioned whether or not I was going to do this. About oh, a few months ago, I kind of thought maybe I'd... Uh, I'd make a decision to back out of this and uh, and go on with some of the golf tournaments that I'm asked to play in all the time, or uh, I know closer, uh, or get involved a little bit more with uh, with my grandkids, uh, of which I have nine, and uh, I'm glad that I never followed through with that, and uh, uh, I've had just a marvelous and wonderful time and. I want to thank you, uh, uh, Joe, for encouraging me to be a part of this, and especially being smart enough to know that a golf addict, when you said two days of golf, and probably in front of the, the speaking that did it. However, uh, uh, certainly what I've enjoyed here in the building in my uh, chats with everyone, uh, and you've been most kind and gracious to me. I thank you very, very much. This job of coming out and pitching is... Uh, or or uh, speaking is so much like pitching. Uh, here I am, and I, you know, uh, it's the little things. I know that we've talked about that a lot. It's the little things that really eat you up. The, uh, uh, I'm sure that you know we've talked about it in the program a lot. When uh, you know, it really isn't the traumatic things that happen in life. It's those little things that trip us and get us back into uh, use again. As you know, we in the and I, you know, I guess most of you know that I've had a, a, a long history of working in the in the rehabilitation field, but we saw that and hear that so often. And uh, it was, you know, kind of in the in the uh, uh, pitching that I really hated to be a relief pitcher, not because I couldn't stand the pressure late in the game. I had great ability, and I'd come out of that that bullpen and usually do a great job, but. There was uh, uh, this thing about the starting pitcher. He had a routine, you know, and uh, you had four or five days advance notice a lot of times, and you go out there to the mound, and, you know, before the game, the Star Spangled Banner is played, and now, just before you walk out to the mound, you had the opportunity, after the Star Spangled Banner, you'd walk out. <clears throat> well, that was playing. I, uh, as a starting pitcher, <clears throat> and I was that I, before I arrived at the Yankees, I had a chance to go down in the toilet and the, uh, uh, off the dugout and take that, uh, nervous little thing that we have to do. Uh, any athlete will tell you that before we get out there and compete. And, uh, and I think that was great. I walked out to the mound. I was totally ready to pitch. And uh, everything just kind of went smoothly from there on. But as a relief pitcher uh, and, and a speaker, it seems like you always get out there with a full bladder. And I, I did run out a while ago. And, uh, and uh, I didn't realize that, the, you know, that some of these... Some of these relief pitchers, evidently, who get up first in this business, say uh, how long they were going to take and so forth. So here I am. Uh, so you're blessed in one way. This this talk may not be as long as I'd like to be able to make it. 
However, I want you guys to know that uh, they're standing in the men's room when I come charging out of here that uh, uh, you could move out of the way for me if you would. Uh, but don't worry, since I stopped drinking, my control has gotten a hell of a lot better. <laughs> but uh, at my age, I wouldn't recommend being in the line behind me. So it is the little things. Yesterday, I played golf with a with a very gracious guy who was on my case quite a bit while we played. I don't think I, I think he's quite a competitor. He happens to be a physician from uh, down in Miami, Florida. Uh, his, ina- his initials are Wayne Siegel. <laughs> and he promised me that he was going to heckle me. Well, uh, that's fine. Uh, uh, I don't mind being heckled. I've had 100,000 people at one time heckle me. And, <laughs> and also the very best, I think, of hecklers, and they were down in Baltimore. And uh, so I don't mind. And I, I kind of wish that you would every once in a while. If you don't like what's being said or if you've got a little something to say, go ahead and say it. You know, And uh, I think we'll get along a lot better. However, it has always been my desire to do what Chili Davis did the other day. Are you aware of what he did in Milwaukee? There was some fan on him, and uh, he just politely walked over to the stand and punched him. (laughs) So I might want to, uh, I'm kind of obsessive-compulsive still. Some of my friends here that I've made, I I have relayed to them some of my uh, obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Uh, Now, I'll just name a few of them. Yesterday morning, I got up early and went out and... uh, and I retrieved 130 golf balls down here, but I don't know if that means anything to you, but it does to my grandkids, I'll guarantee you. But uh, at one time, uh, because I had some pretty good mechanical ability, and this is my rationale for it, and because uh, I ran into this guy who ran the biggest chain store, uh, chainsaw store in the country up in Black River Falls, Wisconsin, at least that's what he said, uh, he had all these used chainsaws in there that he took in in trades and, and on some special sales and so forth. So I bought 150 of them. <laughs> Anybody in here see anything wrong with that? <laughs> well, anyway, I've, uh, obviously, uh, I've, you know, I've had a, a very uh, happy life. I wasn't much of a ball player, really, and truthfully, when you consider my talent. But because baseball is what it is, and I am kind of a semi-celebrity, I guess, uh, I had a second career in this field of of alcohol and drug work uh, that I'm so tickled about, that I'm so happy about, that I am so grateful for. And uh, uh, where that has taken me, where it has taken my family, my loved ones, and uh, a lot of other people, uh, uh, I'll be eternally grateful to this program for. And uh, to say that I had celebrity status or, or was well-known in baseball, I tell people that, uh, I, you know, of course, I don't know how much you are aware of me now, but for a while, I think that I was probably better known in the field of alcohol and drugs than certainly in baseball. And I, and I don't think I was nearly as talented, but I did a hell of a lot of research, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, I had... 
a tremendous inability, I guess, to to use alcohol in moderation, as you know, as all of you do. But at the same time, I had a a, a, a tremendous tolerance for it, like most of us had at one time. And so, along the gel link charts and so forth, I think after I got some education, it was very easy to for me to chart, you know, where I was and where I was going and and so forth. But uh, Grasping this program was very, very difficult for me because of who I was and what I was doing and where I came from and all of those things. I had tremendous injunctions to use alcohol. And I've, my education into this area uh, was also coupled with, at the time, uh, working with juvenile delinquent kids and studying growth and development. So I had a chance to really look at why and, and I got some answers. I know a lot of times we say it really doesn't make any difference why, other than the fact that we are, and that might be true. But I want to share some of those things with you. I think the strongest injunction that I had came before I ever drank, and many years before it. It came probably as I was sitting in my father's lap, listening to the Lone Ranger. All of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again, the great champion of justice. And my dad and I would sit there as a three-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old kid. I don't know exactly where it started, but back in the early 30s. And uh, my dad was a war hero himself in World War One, But he had a hero, much like Mickey Mantle was a hero to me and is a hero to me. Uh, he was called Big George. He could outfight, outmarch, outdrink anybody. And... Through those early years, Dad would always be talking about Big George and uh, where uh, they would go on these R&Rs over in Europe and how he could outdrink everybody. And when somebody got tough with somebody in their outfit, this man, the champion of the underdog, would step forward and whip any and all that messed with anybody in his outfit. And Dad would get that twinkle in his eye. And then the word around not only Dad but his other wartime buddies was that Big George could certainly outdrink everybody. And I had this picture in my mind of Big George being there, kind of laughing at everybody else who had already drank enough to pass out, and he just absolutely couldn't do it. And so when I arrived as a senior in high school with the ability to outdrink most of the men around me, uh, they didn't say somebody was sick or had a problem or anything. They said, wow, what a guy. What a chip off the old block. I'm going to need a drink. Do you mind uh, getting me a glass of water, please? <laughs> um, so it was not only that, but uh, at that age, but it certainly was, thank you, it certainly was within our family that we had alcohol on the pedestal. For you who subscribe to the genetic theories and so forth, I had, I've lost 12 aunts and uncles to early deaths and uh, very, very poor quality of life. Some of them were millionaires. One of them died in the penitentiary. It didn't make any difference, but alcohol was a thing. Uh, and they were beautiful people. Alcohol was the thing that was killing them. And uh, I have two brothers uh, that are alcoholic. One of them is recovered 
neither one of them, one is dry and one is certainly recovering and we have a great time together. The other one uh, is so angry at me for trying to do an intervention a number of years ago that uh, he uh, obviously is not speaking to me and at this point no one else in the family. And uh, I feel very badly about that, but I think we all understand it. So we rallied around alcohol in our family. When uh, I'll never forget, my, my mother's side, my mother was Annie Murphy, and my father was Reinhold Duren, uh, German, very German, very Irish uh, background, uh, rural Catholicism back in the hill country of southwestern Wisconsin. But when my uncle Harold would drive over to our place from, uh, come up to our place sometimes from Milwaukee, and he was in the publishing business in Milwaukee. He'd drive over and he'd drive up, and Dad would, we lived in a place where you could see the car coming up the road, and Dad would run out with his favorite whiskey and a glass on the rocks, open the door and hand it to him, and Uncle Harold would say, I wondered when we were going to get a drink around here. So we rallied, we certainly rallied around the alcohol. When we buried Uncle Harold many years later, I just had gotten out of the cuckoo's nest in San Antonio State Hospital, I call it. If you saw the movie, The Cuckoo's Nest, that was exactly what it was. And uh, I had been in there for 90 days for my alcoholism. My brother Larry, who was the one that is, uh, is in this program and very sober at the time, was at that funeral. Uh, and he said... You mean to tell me, as good as your Uncle Harold was to you, you're not going to take a drink to him? He said, any Duran has got to be able to drink. Damn you if you won't salute your uncle with a drink. So that was after 90 days in treatment. We, uh, I saw it no differently. Larry then went to the University of Wisconsin. He was a couple years ahead of me. And uh, back in where I started pitching, we had... Home talent baseball. And in that home talent baseball, we lost the pitcher that we had to Southern Minnesota leagues. And they, so they looking for a pitcher. And everybody knew that I could throw so hard, but they didn't see it as a talent. The coaches in high school wouldn't let me pitch because they didn't want to be uh, blamed for someone getting hurt or killed. I threw batting practice one day. The very first, going to throw it, I guess, I, the very first pitch I hit a kid and broke two of his ribs, and that was the end of my pitching career in high school. As a matter of fact, I, as a matter of fact, I played second base, so I couldn't throw overhanded. I had to just flip the ball over to the, uh, the first baseman. That's how talented I was. People didn't understand that. They saw it as a hazard or a detriment until we started playing those other towns where we would go on Saturday night and fight. The next day, Sunday, the fight really kind of continued in the baseball game. And now my hard throwing was all right. So I started pitching back there, and I pitched 30 consecutive no-hit innings. I was averaging 23 strikeouts a game. And pretty soon, in this little town of 370 people, there were 5,000 people in the stands. And a lot of those were strange people that had never been seen in that neck of the woods before. And they turned out to be uh, scouts, and they, had, and they were uh, uh, college coaches and so forth. And so we had to make a decision what I was going to do, and they... They were starting to offer me money. I was offered $30,000 from the New York Yankees at that time to sign with them. 
My mother was insisting upon education. She didn't care how much the money was going to be. I had to go to school and be educated. My brother Larry was at the University of Wisconsin, and he was at a fraternity. And that fraternity was Irish Catholic fraternity on campus, and they were the chuckalug champs of the campus. And Andy McFarlane had dropped out, and he was their anchor man. And with the 16 scholarships that was offered to me, I chose the University of Wisconsin because I had the opportunity to become the anchor man on the Chuggalug team. <laughs> I bought the Drinking Man Mystique Lock, Stock, and Barrel. So to stand in front of you, I, I guess uh, the bottom line is, as an alcoholic, certainly is no surprise. I don't know what that has to do with the genetic theory. But to drink and drink and to be able to drink like a man and drink the most and uh, alcohol was always there, I would expect to have been addicted to beets, which I hate, had I abused them like I certainly and had the high value for it that I did for alcohol. So on into the college, and it wasn't long, and I was a college dropout for two reasons. One, that I never got near a classroom or cracked a book, and the other one was that my high school girlfriend, father-in-law's shotgun, was very close to my back. So I, I now decided that maybe I had better sign that major league contract, and uh, the word was out on what kind of guy I was already at that time, and so now the 30000 wasn't there, nor was the 1000 for that matter. I had to sign, end up signing in desperation for $500 bonus and 150 bucks a month. Now, when I tell you that I was from the hill country of southwestern Wisconsin, and I'm talking about back in 1948 and 49 now, and we kind of forget where we were at that particular time. The very first time I saw a professional team pitch, I, I pitched the game, the opening day for the Wausau Lumberjacks in 1949. The first time I saw a major league team, I was on it. It was pro tele before television. Yes, I saw some newsreels with some ball players, but they were kind of jerky, you know, how they would run and throw and so forth. So I had no coaching whatsoever. I, I truly had a raw talent, and uh, as you know. And it always kind of tickles me today. Uh, I hate to be talking quite so much baseball, but I, I, I know that has a lot more to do with why I'm here than my record in, in the, the alcohol field. But <laughs> let's get that straight. So... The 100-plus mile-an-hour fastball, uh, wherever I went, I, you know, I certainly uh, had that, you know, the reputation for being wild and so forth. And I want to, I, I guess what I'm going to tell you now is that uh, it comes as no surprise to me because uh, after I was out of the game and I was now had been through rehabilitation and just starting the program in Stoughton, Wisconsin. Stoughton, Wisconsin is an all-Norwegian community. And when I said, I know that we're ethnic jokes are a little bad, but this one was my dad's favorite laugh anyway, so I've got to tell it. I married the prettiest Norwegian there, by the way. But 
I, Dad said to me, what is this you're going to do in Stoughton now? And so, always with a sense of humor or a tongue in the cheek as we kind of dealt with each other, I said, Dad, what really I'm going to do down in Stoughton is I'm going to keep a bunch of Norwegians from drinking themselves to death. And he said, son, you think you're using good judgment. <laughs> That's funny in Stoughton. <laughs> so... When I did pitch there, the Norwegian Mafia came to me, in, in, in essence, and told me how much better I would be able uh, to get that program integrated in the community if I do a little pitching. And so I did. I went out and threw some batting practice and, and worked out with them, and I got myself in excellent shape and, uh, and you know, started throwing breaking balls and batting practice and stuff. And and sliders and fastballs in my arm. I was 44 years, three and four years old at that time, and my arm was very alive. So Nolan Ryan's uh, longevity is, is certainly no mystery to me. And they said, you know, you don't have to pitch an ex- exhibition game for us, and we can raise some money for the season, you know, to get some equipment. And, I, and so I agreed to do that, but I said, that's it. I don't want to play beyond that. So they had the exhibition game and uh, played it under the lights in another city against the All-Stars from that league that uh, Stoughton was in, another hometown league. And I struck out 14 out of 15. And they did get a hit off me, broke the guy's bat, and it hit the chalk line back at first base. So now, after seeing that, these guys decided that they could win the, that they could win the uh, pennant, probably, if I would pitch for them. So the... Uh, on Monday morning, the mafia, Norwegian mafia was in my office again, and they said... Your program will do a hell of a lot better, and we'll make sure that it does, but you're going to have to pitch for us. And so I went I went out there two consecutive Sundays, pitched five innings in one game, six in another, struck out 22. I didn't give up a hit. I walked one that the umpire blew. And this is the truth. <laughs> the slider was as hard and crisp as I ever threw it. I could... Uh, for you baseball fans, I could cut the fastball and make it go up and into a left-hander. I could uh, up and into a right-hander naturally, the good sinker. And strikes were no problem. I could throw the ball where I wanted to. My central nervous system was available to me to pitch for the first time in my life. My presence on the mound was fantastic. A hell of a lot better than it is here tonight, I'll guarantee you that. But anyway, I was for the first time... I was Ryan Duran, the Hall of Famer that I should have been, and I knew it. And so I had a hell of a dilemma. There were scouts starting to look at me, follow me around. They thought I could pitch again in the major leagues, and I knew I could. But this program now was in its infancy, and it was the first rehabilitation program as a department in a small community hospital, as far as we know, in the United States. And I was dedicated to it, and I wanted to do it, and I was torn. Truthfully, I was. I went to bed that Sunday night praying to God to to give me the answer. Monday morning, I woke up with this arm so damn sore I couldn't move it. (laughs) And, my friends, I was tickled to death. How many times have you heard a pitcher happy about having a sore arm? But it's, it's the truth as I stand here, sure enough. So... I think God gave me the opportunity to get a little insight, and I, and I certainly talk, and I have researched this, and 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 uh, certainly read everything I can on 
alcohol's effect on the central nervous system and eye-hand coordination and, you know, whatever other way that you want to express that. And I've talked with a couple people about that here. So I have something in that area to offer young people. But, you know, I really haven't told you the real issue about the alcoholism in the young people because this is the way it was for me. When I got into high school, just before I got in, actually I was in the eighth grade, there was this girl sitting across from me. And one day I walked into that, I walked into that eighth grade classroom and this girl looked totally different than she'd ever looked before. And I don't know exactly why that, or I know today why it was, but I certainly didn't know then. I got very curious about her and I, I got very curious about whether or not she cared anything about me, what she thought of me, and I wanted to ask her to be involved with me some way or another. It was a very confusing time. In the movie Ordinary People, Timothy Hutton played this very scene that I was living at that time, and it just made me creep and crawl, you know, with as it does when we get, you know, start to relive some of those things, a deja vu. So here, it, here I was looking at that, and Certainly never forget it, but I just happened to be at my friend Dwayne's one night, and his dad was gone, and I drank a couple of beers, and I got on an old crank telephone too long and a short, and this girl answered the phone. And she said, well, sure, I'd like to, you know, go out with you. And we talked for a while and so forth. Well, then, you know, here we go to the first dance, and the girl that I, you know, that I really like now was in a, a freshman in uh, high school, and she came in from the country, and her name was, and I swear to God that this is the right name, her name was Bricky Outhouse. That really wasn't her first, right first name, but of course that's the one that she uh, was tagged with right away. And so I got very excited about her, and I asked her to dance with me at this very first dance and uh, uh, walked over to her. And when we got on the floor and she held me close, my left leg was iron and my left one was uh, my right one was lead, and I stood there like a kid, like the little grandkid does when he's got his pants full, just kind of, you know, <laughs> scared, absolutely scared to death. And all of those things of adolescence we have to work through, disagreeing with and learning how to deal with authority, uh, the first uh, sexual encounters, the, the double binds that we would get into, and... Uh, Alcohol seemed like it started to be there every time to kind of bail me out. So I went through adolescence in this, certainly getting alcohol to help me through all of that. So I got trapped and I got trapped in adolescence. Much, I think, as we do, did also in baseball. And I heard a, one night I was driving across the country and I, I heard a tape, a, a program on the radio, how physicians, how doctors, in particular, how they get caught up in the studies and how uh, our social skills and our maturity in personal interactions and so forth are defunct. And certainly that was the way for me. So when I finally blew the whole thing in baseball, got out and got into treatment, the real challenge was for me to get out of adolescence. You know, uh, that answer came to me, I guess, when I was in the 10th hospitalization down at uh, uh, DePaul. It was the seventh time I'd been in a rehabilitation hospital. It was the 33rd or fourth or fifth time that I had been in front of some type of helping professions. 
And in that, I'm not counting judges and jailers. You know, I was there, and people did not say what was wrong with me. They thought maybe there might be a drinking problem, or I might be an alcoholic. There's that possibility. But I got the answer at DePaul Hospital when one of the counselors who was an ex-priest just said simply, he said, gentlemen, we got a, a very... Simple problem. We're drug addicts as surely as if we're hooked on heroin. I think that very, very simple message is lost in our society today. I know that kids will tell you that alcohol is a drug, but they have no idea what they're talking about. And I certainly can go on and, and, and talk about that, you know, forever and prove it with my experience in, in the school systems. So it was at the a place called the Norris, uh, at the DePaul Hospital, then followed certainly by the Norris Foundation, where I became a dorm parent, a single dorm parent or counselor for uh, dependent and uh, delinquent children. The amazing thing was that these kids were somewhere between 12 and 17, 18 years of age, and hell, I was one of them. The only difference was that I had a 40-year-old body. And so when we started studying growth and development, and I was back at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee taking some courses in, in child care and development and so forth, and I'd sit in those staff meetings there, they were talking about me. And so I had the opportunity to learn who I was while certainly I was getting well. And for the very first time in all of the rehabilitation, they told me that... Uh, I had to be honest and forthright with my uh, employer. I didn't have to agree with him, but I had to be honest with him. I had to tell him what I thought, and I did. And it was a great, just a great place to get well. It was protection from my family. It was protection from the game of baseball. It was protection from the notoriety. It was protection from the exploitation. And so while I was there... I continued to go to the meetings, of course, but I continued my professional, uh, being involved in my professional group. And then, about 20 months into that rehabilitation process, I was driving in there one night, and I was 40, 41 years old at the time. I was driving back to DePaul to one of my outpatient groups, and I realized that I was thinking about dying. And it didn't seem to bother me. I was always panicky about dying. And uh, sure, I, you know, I made my attempts at suicide, and, and uh, I can tell you a little bit more about that uh, also. But I, I was panicky about what my parents thought about me. I was panicky about what I was going to do to make a living, uh, how I was going to become legitimate the rest of my life. I had nothing to fall back on, I didn't think. They gave me a test, a vocational test at DePaul when I left there, or about the time I was leaving there after 30 days of treatment, and they said, write down every possible way you can make a living. And I sat at that, with that paper at that desk for about a half hour, or at least, and turned it in blank. I couldn't think of any way, anywhere that I could make a living or that I could be accepted. After 20 months at DePaul, and my sharing that night that I no longer was running afraid and that uh, what was up here didn't scare me anymore, that, that the fear was gone, 
I took that test again, and I, I actually wrote down 34 different ways that I could make a living. I had a tremendous amount of, of uh, training in my life in a lot of different areas. Just in case you'd like to know what some of them are, I'm a hell of a good plumber. I plumb my own house. I wired. I've wired a lot of, of things. I'm an excellent mechanic. I can go on and on. But what I want to say to you is none of the things that I wrote down was that I was going to run an alcohol and drug rehabilitation program. And I certainly, I'm, I'm very grateful that it, it turned out that way. And how that happened was that I was speaking in an anniversary party in uh, Madison, Wisconsin one night, and the administrator, who now was a couple years sober from Stoughton, heard me speak. And uh, he said, I have an idea about starting a rehabilitation uh, program, Ryan. I'd like to talk to you about it. So at this point, into the third year of my recovery, I went back to DePaul and took some consular training. And so now I'm down at, at the ball game with Bill, and we're kind of going over the his ideas and so forth, and end up going over to Stoughton and talking with the doctors and the people, and we started the program. And I can't tell you how glad I am that I had no idea what Main Street politics in Stoughton was doing at that time. Had I, I don't think I could have succeeded, or we couldn't have uh, certainly succeeded. So, uh, and I, I would come to find out a lot about that at, at a later time. So I had a personal board of directors that guided me, my person, and they were five different guys there in Stoughton, some of them recovering, some of them who were not. And I took my problems to them very honestly and seriously and, uh, and what was going on in my own personal life and, that, and my feelings about the program and so forth. And with that help, uh, that program got underway. And... Uh, in three years' time, we had 30-some employees. When I left there, uh, 10 years later, we had 48 employees. But the program was maybe a little different. I don't know. I, I think that my personal experiences and the fact that uh, uh, I had such a... Uh, I had nine years of hell on earth, like we have all had, uh, trying to get some idea about recovery... So what we did, we started a different type of program, I think. We started an educational program. My philosophy about it was a very simple thing. My philosophy was that we were only treating the illness by having that individual in treatment. By having that person there, we had the license to treat the problem. The problem wasn't the drinking of the individual. I think we've all been mistaken about that. The problem was the ignorance of that group to which that individual belonged. And you can sit there all day long and do one-on-one -on -one counseling with somebody in my mind, and uh, you can sit around with counselors and talk, and you can stay in group therapy, but as soon as that person goes out and goes back to where he was, like I did when I, I got out of uh, a couple of the first treatment centers, I went back to the Philadelphia Phillies, for instance, and I... And uh, the guys over at Philadelphia, I wasn't drinking. And as Casey said, you could look it up. 19, in 1963, my record was 7-2. and two. And I didn't have a good sense of why it was better, but it certainly was. And I started drinking again in August. But when I went back there, I was sitting in a, a restaurant one night with, uh, at a table with four other guys. And they wanted me, come on, rhinos, like the good old days, come on and have a drink with us. You know, be yourself, loosen up a little bit. 
And so I went to the bottom line. I just said to him, hey, guys, I can't drink with you anymore. I found out that I'm an alcoholic. And they cracked up. They laughed and laughed and, you know, ha-ha'd and about fell off the chair saying, hell, Reinhold, you're no more alcoholic than we are. (laughs) Three out of the four were right. No doubt about that. But wherever you went, you know, uh, and in all fairness, I guess to Mickey, he recognized my problem. And Whitey, I was out with them one night in Washington, D.C., and I started to fight and got them in all kinds of trouble with the hotel that we were in and with the police and everything else. And the next day in the clubhouse, Mickey said to me, they came over and they had that little meeting. I had the locker right next to Whitey down the corner, and they kind of looked around and see if everybody's out of the way. And they said, hey, Reynolds, you know what? You shouldn't drink. And, of course, they were right. But I thought, well, I don't know about that mantle. And so one night, uh, Mickey and I carpooled uh, in 1959, I guess it was. We carpooled from New Jersey, and, and uh, we lived over in Ridgewood area. And we go back and forth, and we, we were you know, great friends. And so in the wintertime, he lived up in Dallas, and I was living in San Antonio at the time. We'd go, I'd go up there and party. And then back of my mind, this thing that I shouldn't drink always kind of chewed at me. So we went out, and I, without telling him that we were having a contrast, I carried him home. And I stood him inside the door over at the house and, I, and closed the door, and I heard a crash in the house, and I walked off the steps saying, I shouldn't drink, huh? And so that was the way I handled it. Everything, you know, certainly was a... Was you took it as a as a personal challenge, and uh, so it went. You know, certainly it went on, and I had no opportunity, I guess, at that time to have anyone else involved in my in my treatment process or education process or a support system, and uh, so obviously I was going to go back to drink. I was the drinking man. I bought the drinking man profile, and while I'm saying that, I guess I have to go back to who Big George. One time I bought, uh, I know that uh, you remember the chainsaws, I went up to Upper Michigan and I was looking for a four-wheel drive truck at the time and there was an outfit up there that had some four-wheel drives and they were so much cheaper priced up in Upper Michigan that I bought four of them. And so, <laughs> so we drove them home. But anyway, I drove them back to Wisconsin. When you bring that vehicle in out of state, you have to have it inspected. And the guy that inspected had the same last name as Big George. And I say, whatever happened to Big George? You know, uh, he, he, you knew him, didn't you? Because he had told me he was from the same area. And he said, yeah, right, he was my uncle. He died on uh, Skid Row out in Los Angeles back in the 30s sometime. And he said, you're the first person I ever told that to. So the guy probably who was uh, most responsible for what I wanted to be in life died on Skid Row. And so it doesn't surprise me, and it shouldn't surprise you, that that's where I ended up. You know, Skid Row in, in, uh, in San Antonio, and uh, Gene Seal and I were talking about that today. I came out from under the bridges, folks. And, and I don't know if that surprises you. Uh, I don't know if you saw the other day the great right-hander for the Houston Astros that could throw so hard. Did anybody see that in the, in the papers? that he was sleeping in the car and under the bridges. So I saw him at, uh, at an old-timers game a while back, and uh, 
it would be nice to have some mechanism to certainly reach out and, and to reach to some of those guys. And we're trying now at this point to, to get something like that started. But Ralph Hawk told me one time, and Ralph Hawk was a macho guy. You know, Ralph was a, was a major in the Rangers. He was manager of the Yankees. And one time, dead serious, he said to me, and I know he believed this, he said, you know, Ryan, I'd rather have nine whiskey drinkers on my club than nine milkshake drinkers. And I didn't do this, but I just felt like, say, yes, sir, Major. I'm your man. I'll never forget the challenge that he put in front of me one night down in uh, Charleston, West Virginia. The guy that pitched the first game of a doubleheader shut him out with three hits. And he's, and I would pit, just shortly before that, I had pitched the only no-hitter that's ever been pitched in the history of Denver and was getting all kinds of ink with the pitching I was doing after I was traded for Billy Martin and went out there in 1957. And he said, I don't think there'll be any ink for you tomorrow, big boy. And the ninth inning, he told me, looks like you're running out of gas. It was, uh, I had a one-hit ball game going at the time. Nine fastballs later, it was his birthday, I gave him the ball and I said, here's the ball from somebody that's run out of gas. So, yeah, I wanted to be, I wanted to be the real man in real life, and I, and I take a lot of pride in that. You know, the, the, the machismo, the, the challenge and so forth. And I, I think, yes, you should. I, the issue here is maybe a little bit different, but I bought, I bought that macho image, and I bought the drinking man profile right down the line. We had some dandies there. We had Hank Bauer, the ex-Marine. You know, we had Mickey and we had Whitey. And, uh, uh, certainly, uh, the history of the Yankees with such macho guys as Reynolds and Rashi and so forth. And you were living there in that tradition. And the drinking tales and exploits of all of these guys, when, when some of them would come to the ballpark so hungover. Not, you know, I, certainly I can mention Mickey because he has said that about himself. But that was the history, certainly, of baseball at that time. When I went to the commissioner and talked to him, I told him that we were losing, you know, our, our, our national heroes to this disease alcoholism. And he really kind of turned a deaf ear and asked me what I knew about the amphetamines that Boughton mentioned in his book. So it was, it was a very difficult, it was a very, very difficult thing to ever crack in, uh, to crack that, that drinking macho mystique that was a part of, of baseball. So, when I arrived at the Yankees, I can't tell you what a great thing it was the first night that Whitey and Mickey asked me to go out and drink with them. I was in heaven. I had really arrived. And to tell you that drinking was accepted, uh, I pitched in Chicago one night. My brother was at the game. And after the game, we went out, and I hadn't seen him for a while. That was my brother Larry, and he was my, not only my brother, but a great friend of mine. And we were out drinking, and I came in just a little tipsy, about 2 o'clock in the morning. It had been a night game. And that was usually the time that Casey was just getting out of the bar after drinking with the writers. And so why he, I think he got on the elevator and forgot to push the button. Well, Larry and I walked up to the elevator and I push the button, the door opens, and there's Stingle standing there at the, holding on to the railing, kind of back of him. And he said, looked at me, and he said, drunk again, Mr. Duran. And I said, me too, Casey, let's go to bed. 
it was a way, it was a way and a style of life. And not until it got where it was embarrassing the club. When I finally knew that it was over for me, I was down in St. Petersburg in the Sereno Hotel, and that was a lousy hotel. You could have written a little note about uh, bad hotel things uh, uh, there every day, but especially the service uh, and, uh, and, uh, probably, uh, there could have been a little something written about, you know, how we were treated and, uh, and, you know, uh, just what kind of consideration they had for players. They didn't have much. And especially at night when I was on the phone talking and screaming on the phone drunk to, uh, I guess to, it could have been anybody, uh, but I, I imagine it was my wife or a, an old girlfriend or something. I, I used to get telephonitis and, uh, the reason uh, that I'd get telephonitis when I was drunk is I would remember all these people to call and I could remember the numbers when I was drunk. I couldn't remember them sober. So I'd have a few drinks and, and I'd start to think of all these numbers that, uh, and I don't know whether that happens to you, but later I found out that we usually can recall things at the same level of consciousness at which they go in. And so, <laughs> and, uh, Johnny Clipstein, I saw Johnny the other day, and he was my roommate at Philadelphia. And uh, late in that 63 season, I had I had called uh, Monaco, and I had Princess Grace on the phone. I get a lot of kidding from the, I claim to be her brother in Philadelphia, and uh, I get a lot of kidding from the ball players about that. But, uh, you know, Yogi, I was talking with Yogi the other day at a golf tournament in, uh, in up in Fargo, and... Uh, and, you know, we, I said, well, I hope he's doing good and everything. I said, you know, I talked out at the Betty Ford Hospital and, uh, on February the 5th and, uh, Mickey left there on February 4th, uh, in the evening. And I, I've always felt that, uh, there was a little more than coincidence there. He, uh, wasn't scheduled to leave for a couple more weeks, but, whether or not he really truly wanted to see him, I don't know. And I said, what do you think, Yogi? You think he'll make it? And Yogi says, he ain't going to quit until he quits. <laughs> so I, I suppose that that, uh, that truly is, is the way it is. But uh, And while we're on the subject of Yogi, I asked him, I told him the other day that, I, uh, uh, that when I saw him at another tournament, I said to him, Yogi, it would seem to me that, you know, somebody with all of your knowledge ought to still be out there doing some consulting work in baseball. You know everybody and you know the players and you certainly recognize talent so well. And he said, what's to consult? He doesn't think there's anybody out there that'll listen, evidently. And, uh, and of course, that of our of the guys of our era who are managers, that's the way they all feel about it, that, uh, that no one is... No one is paying any heed to it. Uh, the guys of our era evidently uh, just can't handle that, and so they start to bail out all the time. So my challenge then was to get out of adolescence. And so in my treatment was actually working through all these feelings. And as I went back to DePaul, Mike Hawkins asked me if I'd had any dates. He asked me if I'd been dancing, and uh, he asked me, how I was dealing with authority, and I'll give you one quick story. Fred Burroughs, who was our, as our superintendent at the institution, uh, was a very good friend of mine. He was a little guy and an ex-jock from University of Wisconsin Lacrosse quarterback, 
And uh, I said to him one day, after he had sent me about the third toughest kid that came in there, I always got the tough kids to handle. So I went over there. The, the other counselors say, how come he's dumping these kids on you all the time? And I went over to his office and I said, look, Fred, you know, I'm sick of this. I, I'm sick of getting dumped on. You give every kid that's hard managed, you give them to me and, and uh, come in there. And, you know, I'm looking uh, uh, certainly for the negative all the time anyway. And so... He said, well, Ryan, he said, you didn't think that we could possibly put these guys over in the dorm with the, the other uh, dorm for the new kids. Jack, he couldn't deal with them. So what I saw was a compliment. I felt people were using me and picking on me as, you know, I think that paranoid sense was was always there. So the Norris Foundation, where I had 19 delinquent kids under me. Uh, actually became my home. It was protection from my family. Uh, it was protection from all of those, certainly all those things that I mentioned before. And so while I was there, you know, I got out of adolescence. And I can't tell you how many of those kids, uh, what a blessing it is, uh, how many of those kids can buy. The other day I was in a restaurant in Madison with my wife for breakfast. And a guy came up and hit me on the back and he said, I'd recognize that voice anywhere. And I looked up, and for some reason or another, God let my own mind call that kid's name right out. And I said, Romy Berkman, how are you? And what are you doing? And he said, I am the sales manager for Railvac Batteries. I jumped up and hugged that kid. How many of those kids have come back, you know, and have written me letters? And while I was getting well uh, and healing from alcoholism, obviously, and getting well, I was sharing that with them. They were my family. And so after a while, they named me the, the supervisor of counselors there, director of activities and projects. And uh, I was very, very fortunate, I guess, to have had that, that place to get well. Now, it, rather than having to uh, make sure that someone was with me when I went to my family after a couple of years, I was strong enough to be around those situations myself. And it was about, you know, shortly after that that Mr. Hale came and we started the, the program over at the, the Stoughton Hospital. I would like to feel, and I don't know how you feel about this, I don't do a lot of meetings anymore, and I don't talk the traditional AA talk like a lot of people do. I don't know whether that's because I wore two hats for a while. Certainly I'm grateful, and I, and I certainly feel that I worked the program fine. But I think that today I'm the guy that I should have been. I see this program as a bridge to normalcy. I don't see normalcy as being able to drink. <laughs> Certainly don't get me wrong about that. I, uh, I'm very, very tickled to uh, and happy, certainly, to have a new family, to have good relationships with my ex-wife, for that matter, with my uh, a child from my previous marriage, my son, and uh, with his family. That's great. They live in Austin, Texas, and uh, he's very, very well off and, and has great job and, and great rapport with the children. And uh, the new family uh, now is, to me, 20 years old, and I've watched those kids grow up and have their children. They are uh, nationally known water skiers and, and, uh, and champions in that area, and uh, I, I just love to be with them. They are they're super kids. One of them went through treatment. Uh, 
directly. We, uh, my daughter, uh, stepdaughter, put her in treatment. And uh, one of the boys I had to put, he went to seminary up at uh, New Brighton in uh, Minneapolis. And while he was there, very shortly, he punched some other kid out who was, uh, I guess, I had the Bible under his hand and was always quoting and trying to control and manage things, you know, with God there. And so they, Mark had a couple of beers one night, and, and this guy started you know, getting on him or whatever, and Mark hit him with a six-incher and knocked him cold. And he called me the next day and said, Say, uh, Ryan, he said, you think I could come down and intern with you for a few weeks? And so Mark came down and, and uh, stayed with us for seven weeks. And, and I really can see the difference in Mark and the other boy who, uh, who had a, was exposed to that treatment over that, so that, over that period of time. So the, the, uh, uh, the opportunity to talk with these kids and to have a family uh, that grew up with a, a exposure to talking about their feelings and honestly and talking with, uh, with me about uh, and being educated in the area of, of alcohol and other drugs and, uh, and someone, you know, I blew it with my first son. However, we did have the opportunity when I was working at the Norris Foundation. He came up there and uh, we, we did some uh, family therapy with the people down at DePaul. That was back in the, in the early 70s. And uh, thank God, uh, God gave him the ability uh, to run. He was a track star at SMU and in high school in San Antonio, and he went through college on a track scholarship. And he's just a super kid. So I'm very grateful for that. I, uh, I, I wrote a book a number of years ago, and uh, I don't know how many times I've gotten uh, a letter or fan mail from people who said, well, as a result of reading your book, you know, I made a change, and uh, I guess uh, I'm very happy about it. That is a weekly occurrence, or daily almost, when uh, I'm opening my fan mail. And I'm very, very grateful for that, that I've had that opportunity. I think the, uh, the, probably the greatest compliment that I received over the years, the thing that I felt best about was this urologist at the hospital. And I may have told some of you this the other time I talked to this group out in Norristown, but... Uh, this urologist uh, came to me the day that I announced my retirement and told me that uh, uh, what it was a, it was a, such a great thing that 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 program had been in the hospital uh, that he he felt that that it was the greatest thing that ever happened to the community and then he was very honest with me he said you know when we brought the program here the doctors did not want it in that hospital the majority of them and that was the challenge to get that program integrated into that hospital against uh, really the medical staff's uh, uh, desires at that time. That was the stigma of alcoholism in there. And it was a tough battle. You know, I go into that for hours talking about the things that we did. However, he said today, I think, uh, and we got, i tell you how we got to be very close was that we talked about chainsaws a lot. And uh, he loved he loved chainsaws, and uh, we talked a lot of chainsaws. And a little later, we got a lot closer than that because he did a vasectomy on me, and so he got to be a very good, obviously a, a good friend of mine. And uh, he told me he said, "I think that this program is the greatest thing that ever hop happened to this hospital, and I think you're the greatest, one of the greatest people I've ever known in my life." I thought that was quite a compliment, and that was six years later.
So this program gave me the strength to do that. Your support, certainly the, the AA support, the people back there. So it's given me the support, certainly, and the, and the desire to go on. Now, there are an awful lot of things that we haven't done in the field of alcoholism. And the first one is just identify the problem. We've been so busy, in my mind, talking about alcoholism and recovery that uh, we forget what alcohol is. The kids do not know what alcohol is. David and I were talking today. From Al David's from Alabama, and you probably saw us together quite a bit. We had our heads together, and I was telling him, I said, Here's the way I look at it, David. How many years of education have you had? And he told me 24 or 5, formal. I said, how many does the pharmacist have? And what is it, 17, 18, something like that? I said, how much research goes into each one of those drugs that now comes onto the market? And considering that how many of those drugs probably aren't nearly as psychoactive as alcohol, so you go into a school system and you ask the kids about alcohol, the drug, and they, they'll tell you it's a drug. But when you ask them uh, how much and how often for this drug, they know nothing about that because their mother doesn't know, their doctor hasn't told them, the pharmacist hasn't told them, they don't know what social drinking or moderation is, they have absolutely no idea. The injunctions today are stronger than they've ever been, and they're dying left and right, like my 22-year-old nephew that I dearly loved that died uh, when the guy that he was riding with had a blood alcohol of 1.195 in January of this year. Broke my heart. I still sob when I think about it. Kid never had the education he should have had. Yes, I spent some time talking with him, but certainly his parents and other people there didn't have a chance. So it still is continuing. The single car accidents are out there. Uh, the people who are forfeiting the, their maturity. And I think that the worst thing that's happening in our society today, honestly and truthfully, is just simply that we have people who never got out of adolescence raising kids. It's called sibling rivalry. Is the relationship between parent and child in many households today. That's what it is. And so what happens is that the kid... The parent, the big person, is driving the other kid right out of the house or insane or whatever. And uh, so I think that that's the re a responsibility that we need to uh, shoulder a little bit more where we can. I think that we'd ought, we'd ought to be doing the education that we possibly can. Yeah, we're not going to solve the problem in our generation, but I don't think it's very necessary that we do. But I think we'd ought to continue the work on the way. My father was in the lumber business. And over the years, uh, the lumber business was pretty good to him until, and to his family during the, until the Depression. But Dad, what Dad finally was doing in his uh, older age was planting trees. That's what we need to be doing. I don't expect to solve this problem, but I do think that we have to take up the really the beautiful pastime of planting some trees. Thank you.